I, you guys ready? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. All right, guys, welcome to the Tony and the Dakota podcast. We got two special guests today. Uh, these guys are the Bokley brothers, but they're not really brothers, and Tony's going to introduce them. <laughs> these guys are out of Las Vegas, Nevada. They have plenty of rental properties, getting into hotels a little bit even. Um, they are most known in our future flipper mastermind program for doing really big deals. So luxury flips a million dollars or more in Las Vegas. They also are licensed realtors have their own brokerage, uh, where they advertise uh, for folks who want low fees and most of the paperwork taken care of. Uh, these are the Bokley brothers. I'm, I, I want to make sure I got this right. This is Landon Bokley and Jesse Richards. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to spill all the dirt. But yes, uh, so we go by the Bokley brothers. We are technically cousins. Our fathers are identical twins. And so we just went around, started our business together. Agent after agent, person after person was like, you guys look alike. Oh, you guys look alike. Wait, are you brothers? So we're like, you know what? Yeah, we're brothers. We're brothers. Dude, that's awesome. That's what everybody says about us, too. They're like, are you brothers? I'm like, we don't even look alike. <laughs> we also were thinking, you know, okay, we're going to start this this educational brand, too. Bokley Cousins does not sound very appealing. <laughs> yeah. So Bokley Brothers sounds way better. No question. Yeah, if we rebrand, it's going to have to be Bailey Brothers because, you know, I got the Tony uh, and Dakota podcast. I got my name first on the podcast, so it's got to be the Bailey Brothers if we go. <laughs> you take that one. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on, guys? Thanks for having us. Yeah, dude. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate you guys. And uh, yeah, dude. So we'll go through uh, what's your guys is uh, or what got you guys into real estate? Great question. Love that question. Yeah. A lot of people always ask that. And, you know, we're kind of born and bred real estate guys, business guys, entrepreneurs. Uh, like Jesse said, our dads are actually identical twins. Uh, came from the East Coast, came from White Plains, New York to Las Vegas back in Oh, what was it, 1980, something like that? This is them. I don't know if this is going to work or not, but you guys can see it. This is Tweedle Dang, Tweedle dude. Dumb, the dads. This is their tryout in the 80s for a double mint gum commercial. <laughs> <laughs> but um, natural entrepreneurs um, came by themselves, really didn't have much of a family backing behind them, so they are kind of fend-for-themselves type of guys, super East Coast-driven. Um and they just worked their way up. So they started their business back in 1982. They opened up a chain of bars called uh, PT's Pub here in Vegas to make the long story short. They were in the bar business for, oh, 20 years and sold out the PT's Pub, which was at the time the largest chain and still is largest chain of privately owned bars in the history of Nevada. Mm -hmm. uh, if you know Las Vegas, if you're in Las Vegas, you know PT's Pub, uh, like the back of your hand, it's a local place to go. Um, so they sold 37 bars back in 2001 mm -hmm. and then they jumped themselves into real estate development, uh, flipping large parcels of land, develop, developing large parcels of land. Um, you know, and then that's, you know, through our childhood, we were around the bars, we were around the business, watched them our entire lives, um, kind of grew up, you know, being taught to think as an entrepreneur, um, you know, as, as rough as it may sound, sometimes, uh, you know, they told us, you know, if you're wearing a name tag by 40, you've done something wrong. You know, that's kind of the mentality that they had. Um, mm -hmm. So we were just born and raised into an entrepreneurial family. Yeah, we just grew up around it. 
Wow. Was that, was that both your guys' dads that were kind of like that too, with that higher expectation or was it just one of them? Oh yeah. No, they share all the same DNA. So it's the same person. <laughs> <laughs> they literally split a brain in half. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They each walk around with half a brain, but they've gotten pretty far with those halves. Yeah. It was wow. just the, the same thing for both of them. They were both in business together since they could walk. They came out here together, started businesses together. So it was always the same mentality, same attitude, same drive. And so regardless, you know, different households with different fathers, it's the same upbringing. Yeah. What, what would you guys say about like your guys is uh, like strength and weaknesses? Are you guys very much like them where you're very similar or do you say you guys are not like them at all? And you just, you know, do so your own thing, similar, but that's about where it stops. Yeah. They look identical on the outside, but yeah. when you actually talk to them, get to know them, they have totally different personalities. They have different approaches to business and life and people relationships. So they're very, very different. And I think that we're similar to each one of those. Right. Personality wise, we're Jesse and I are much different. Um, but yeah, we're, we're more similar to each, each other's fathers than, than our, than, than we, we get are to, ourselves. We get so. to play a little good cop, bad cop, which yeah. never hurts. Who's the good cop and who's the bad cop? You're looking at the good cop. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Landon's the party boy for sure. I got that just looking through his Instagram. I was like, Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm always the bad guy, but that's all right. You know, that's the way it goes. And we get a lot done that way. And they, they built a hell of a career themselves that way as well. So, um, you know, kind of, kind of rewinding back to, you know, where, where we stem from in terms of real estate, um, you know, the guys were crushing it in land. Um, and then of course, you know, like everyone else, 2007, 2008 happened and, uh, land turned to shit. And, um, you know, they, they kept their heads above water by flipping houses. You know, they, they, they were losing a lot of money. They had a lot of taxes to pay property taxes, just to hold on to a lot of debt to pay off, um, from all the land to try to not lose everything, including, you know, their personal, uh, material objects, you know, their houses and cars and everything else, like, like other people were. And, you know, they, they, they talked to us all the time. They saw people who thought they were Superman, you know, fall off, fall off and drown in 2008, uh, people who are worth hundreds of millions or billions lose everything. And they didn't want to really experience that. So in 2008, they picked up a tool belt and a hammer and started flipping homes on, you know, on their own. Um, literally they were in there doing construction and reno renovating properties. Well, Vegas was one of the hardest hit during the downturn. Yeah. So if you know anything about Vegas, when during that time, there was tens of thousands of foreclosures and short sales and all of these bank owned properties that were hitting the market and it was just flooded. So they saw this opportunity where they had a lot of local knowledge and a lot of local people that they could team up with. And they started buying packages of homes from banks, going down to the court steps and buying auctions, homes, and auctions. And they put together a little team and themselves included to go ahead, buy these houses at a discount and severe, you know, severe, severe discount, go in and renovate them. And back then, let's, let's be honest, the renovations weren't. No, those real, are true lipstick on a pay renovation. <laughs> I mean, they were basically just the people that got kicked out of those homes because they were foreclosed on, they were pissed and they made some holes in the walls and they poured gravel down the sinks. So they would go and fix that stuff, repaint the house, put carpet in and put it back on the market. That's Jeez. as easy as it was. Yeah. And they were in there doing that themselves. So they spun up that whole business during this time to essentially not stay stagnant and not lose their yeah. footing. This is before flipping was cool. This is, this, yeah. this yeah. was pure survival. This was Absolutely. before all the A&E and HGTV shows. This was, 
you know, before wholesaling it was even a thing. And right. um, this was just pure survival instincts from them to start picking up cheap properties and making something on them to pay off these, pay off the debts and pay off the taxes to yeah. keep their head above water. Honestly, that's just what it was. It was survival. And they turned it into a great business. You know, eventually pretty soon on, they didn't have to wear tool belts anymore. They had somebody working in there and doing that work for them. And they kept it going even through the recession and even till today where we've essentially kind of stepped in and taken over it and taken it to a new level. But it was really a great business that came out of necessity that they improved and just kept running with throughout the years. And so they, they kept it going and now we're the next gen. Wow. That was something I was going to ask if you guys end up taking over their business, but uh, have they warned you about anything? You know, obviously they were around in 2008 when that was happening, you know, have they seen any correlation to what's happening now? Cause it seems like that's what everybody's always talking about. You know, right now the crash and stuff, have they talked to you guys at all about that? Or do you guys see any signs you think we're going to continue to see a boom? Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, after experiencing what they experienced in 2008 and at their, at their age now, they are much more cautious than, than we are. Of course, we're young guys. We like to take risks and we're all in with what we're doing. Um, but they have, they have their concerns um, as, as we all do with the market, you know, they're still stock, scarred. They're yeah, still they scarred from it. You know, that was a scary time where, like you said, a lot of people around them, these big Titans in Vegas business, like went belly up and, they were able to stay, keep their heads above water, but it didn't not leave a mark on them. Mm -hmm. And so they're always very conservative. They're always very cautious. They're always very aware that all of this could happen again. And how do we protect ourselves in case this happens again? Yeah. yeah I think one thing that we noticed in the market, that's a difference from 2008 was, or that time was, you know, there was 20,000 homes on the market at that time. Mm -hmm. So inventory was high, you know, so also, of course, you know, lots of subprime mortgages and bad loans were given out, which hopefully uh, we haven't done that since, you know, I'm sure there's different ways that that's been done, but uh, in the masses, I don't think that, that everyone has bad loans, you know, mo most, mostly that that was fixed after that problem. But uh, we have a week and a half of inventory on the market right now in Las Vegas, we're at like 2,500 homes or something like that. Um, and I'm talking single family townhomes, condos in the Las Vegas oh. market. So, um, that's my biggest difference maker right now. That's allowing us to evaluate the market is supply and demand. Um, you know, we're still selling properties within, within a week of putting them on the market for full price or even over asking price. So right now, I think we're still pretty bullish on the market. Absolutely. But of course we have that hint of caution behind us with them. And their money being utilized. So yeah, as long as long as inventory stays low, and even if interest rates do climb, which they will probably continue th through the end of the year and into, into next year, the the fact is that we're rising rates from such a crazy low anyway. That so what? Double the rate? Who cares? We're gonna be fine. It's not going to really really affect anything. If it our, our lowest rate, which was like the COVID time rate, was like two point seven something. If you yeah. doubled that, okay, you'd be back to maybe like 2017, 2018 time, which was a fantastic market and everything was hunky dory during then. So like, we're not really worried about that type of rate increase. It's, it's that's an important thing to look at though. And then the level of inventory is another very important thing to look at. So uh, something that Jerry Seinfeld was talking about, his kid came up to him and he was like, Hey dad, are we rich? And he's like, uh, I, I'm rich. 
I yeah. you're not rich. I'm rich. Like you, I I'm wealthy. I don't know about you. Like, I don't know how it's going to work out. Right. Do you see uh, your fathers being more proud like that? Or did they give you a lot of help when you got started? Like where, where was uh, the level of influence as far as uh, your dads were concerned when it came to helping you guys create a foundation and get started in the real estate game? So they were obviously super, super generous. We, we grew up very well off, very happy, never really wanted for much. But there wasn't a sense of ease that they allowed us to feel. So it was, you know, you're obviously going to grow up and I'm going to put you in a good school and I want you to go to college, but you're going to learn to do something. You're going to learn yeah. to make it. And yes, he kind of, they kind of instilled that, you know, yeah, I'm rich, but I don't know about you, that type of thing. Like you're, you know, you're going to have to make it too. Yeah. I mean, I have friends in high school. I mean, Jesse's right. I mean, we, and we, we don't deny that. Like we, we've been brought up in a very, you know, uh, you know, in a very grateful situation, very well off families, but they, you know, they weren't, so they, they worked their ass off to get, get to where they're at. Um, but they did not spoil us is something I think that I'm pretty grateful for. Cause I've had friends that, um, their parents did spoil them and they were rich kids and, you know, their first cars were, um, you know, really nice high-end cars. My first car was like a little Honda element box. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, I, you know, it's, it, which was not bad. I was, I was happy with it, but, um, we were never given like, we heard no a lot. I heard no a lot. A lot of things were no, 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 no. You know, yes, they wanted us to go to college and do good on mm -hmm. that front. Um, but you know, even in college, there's kids with like thousand dollar a week allowances and, I had like a hundred dollar a week allowance. Like I was scraping by to get food. Like I had to drink off my friends' allowances and have fun off my friends' allowances. So it's like, yeah, I think that they instilled a pretty. Um, it's a good work ethic. It's yeah, it comes from being entrepreneurs, you know, not having anything themselves and creating it all themselves and wanting to pass that type of drive on to your kids. And so it was something even look, we're living in a beautiful home and we have nice cars, but like, if I want some money for the weekend, like I'm going to wash all the cars, you know, mm -hmm. I, I like, I got to do something to get something. That's always been the biggest thing is you do something, you get something, do nothing, you get nothing. So they constantly instilled that in us and, and forced us to drive, but always let us know that if you are going to start something, if you're, when you, it is time for you to branch out and and make your way like we support you, you know, we'll be there to help you get it started. If it's uh, a loan to start a business, you know, whatever it is, like you have us to do that, which is great. It's a fantastic resource. A lot of people don't get, so I'm very grateful, but it was, you go decide what you're doing and then you take a loan and you start a business, you know? Yep. What would you guys say? Like, uh, you know, everybody hears the struggles of like the, the poor people. And I feel like people honestly have a lot more sympathy towards that. And I was just talking to Tony about it today, actually. Like, what do you think the struggles are of, like, growing up wealthy um, or, like, you know, your parents wealthy? Like, did you guys experience that or do you see that? Because, I mean, obviously, you're grateful for the opportunity and, like, there's a lot of good that comes with it. But I think that a lot of people don't actually talk about the the negatives of growing up wealthy because there are some negatives as well. Um, and I don't know if you guys have experienced any of them. but It can be it can be too much too fast. And that's really the thing. If If, if your kids get super comfortable with everything that comes to them, then they assume that everything's going to come to them. And they assume that whatever they want, when they want is how the way, the way the world works. 
And unfortunately, if you teach that at a very young age, it's really hard to reverse that. But that's something I saw and you probably saw with kids around you and, and friends growing up. It was you just had free access to whatever you wanted. And it was just too much, too fast. We we had access. We could do cool things, but it was always like monitored in moderation and you had to work for what you wanted to do. Yeah. And I think on the flip side of that, I mean, I was hated my, I've been hated my entire life by a lot of people. I've been hated by all my teachers my entire life because I was a spoiled rich kid that, um, you know, they, as they thought, they only saw the service level, you know, surface of it all. But, um, you know, all, every teacher hated on me my entire, my entire life up through, up through high school, you know, as they all know who my dad was in town, you know, owning, owning mm -hmm. PT. So, um, that was something interesting to have to deal with. Um, other kids' parents were jealous and hated us, you know, hated me as a, as a, as a friend to their, to their kids at times because, of you know, the affluence, um, and then I think still today, even in business, I mean, Jesse and I, a lot of people know who our parents are in this town and they just think that we're the spoiled kids who got handed everything when we're sitting here working our ass off on a daily basis, right. trying to prove ourselves, you know, so that that's been a big negative to us. Um, you know, a big, a big driving force still today. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, still yeah. today. Um, where, you know, we're out proving the fact that no, we're here working hard and making our own decisions and we're big boys and we're doing it ourselves um it's not you know daddy's money and 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 we get a lot of that and that's happened my entire life and i've learned to ignore it because i know that we're working on our own and i know that we're taking you know we're taking a tool and we're using the tool and that's yep. all you can do and yeah. you could do it for if you're if you're dirt poor growing up it's the same thing you take that motivation you take that driving force and you utilize it there's people who are dirt poor growing up and they stay that way their entire lives. There's people who are dirt, dirt poor growing up and they become multi-billionaires. I mean, same with rich kids. I know a lot of rich kids who, who have died because their parents gave them every single thing and they turned into depressed drug addicts and they, they overdosed and died. And I know tons of kids that way where they, if they would have used the tool that they had, man, they'd be, they'd be in the same position we are running a business with a nice family and working hard and, grateful for what they were given but instead they went a different way with it so yeah. we're just playing the there was all a decision play the yep. cards you're dealt and you, you you can't blame people for playing the cards they're dealt right nope. yep that's what i always look at is like man like you guys are using the tools that were given to you and like like people obviously know the benefits of growing up wealthy but some of the things that they don't think about is like the contacts and like obviously like you already know the way but uh people I just feel like definitely do find uh, more sympathy for the poor people. But honestly, like I see, I see negatives on both sides of it where I'm like, man, like I can see where anytime you guys do anything now, you're like, you know, what you just hit is now taken away from you in a way, even though it shouldn't be like, it's still like you guys, you know, did that yourself. And like, you could have created other resources. You just use the resources as easy as for you guys, which makes sense. But at the same time, like everybody's always going to use that as an excuse of reasons of why they can't do it, which I think everybody does no matter what anyway, just, you know, people don't think about that as a negative. They just think, oh, they're rich, their life's great, and it's always going to be great. And uh, it was yeah. easier for them than it, than it is for me. And exactly. That's it. And woe, woe is me. It's said, grab, grab life and go get it. Stop yep. worrying about why, how we're doing it or why or if it's easier for anybody else than you. Just go do it. Yep. So one last question on that. Uh, how much autonomy do you guys actually have in the business now? Like, do you guys have free reign or do they kind of like 
hey, like slow down a little bit because we don't want 08 to happen again. Like, do they tell you anything to do with your business or are they completely out of it and let you do like you, it's your guys's? Yeah, they're completely out of it now. Right. I mean, they've been out of it for four years now. You know, they, they were probably involved with us. Um, you know, they, they're lenders to us now still. Yep. Um, but in terms of a, a say-so, only lasted about six yeah. months, and then we took over and ran with it from so there. That's, so that's essentially is they, they kind of guided us, watched the first few homes we did, made sure we were doing the right things to them. And even from then, we were button heads because they wanted to just put carpet in the bathrooms. And we're like, we can't do that anymore. anymore. <laughs> and so we, we kind of graduated from that pretty quickly. And we ended up doing a lot more homes than they ever thought we would, even at an early stage, even our first year. And so once it was, once it was rolling, it was off to the races. And now that's their capacity is essentially they're just a bank. And awesome. we, we, we pick the properties. We pick how much we're going to buy them for. We pick how much we're going to put into them. We pick how much, you know, we're going to sell them for, and they don't have any say in any of that. It's just about, okay, guys, you know, you have X million dollars to use and we're capped out at this time, or we have available funds. Do you want to use it? That's about it. And this isn't free money, guys. We're talking about expensive money. They're they're yeah. sharks. They're they're oh, they're hustlers pay, too. Yeah, we pay for it. They're the most expensive money that we have yeah. uh, in terms of financing. And you know that's you know once again caused us to go out find our own way. We've learned ourselves. We've learned from other people around us, other investors, and we've gotten three more <laughs> investors now that you know we have another thirty million dollar credit line with. So. Mm -hmm. That's um, awesome. The money we use utilize from them is is one of the lesser of all the other financing that we use right now. But we have so much freedom in it that yes. we end up utilizing it all the time because it's basically we can use it however we want. Yeah, no question. That that's awesome. That's what I was going to ask if you guys had other lenders. Now you're like, all right, well let's uh, let's find some cheaper money now. <laughs> no, I mean yeah. they they literally started us off at like maybe a million or two. And they were like, okay, you're going to go buy maybe three, four homes this year like that. Yep. These boys will be happy. Like they'll go do that. And our yep. first year we ended up buying 27 homes. And then that, that three to four went to like maybe seven or eight. And then we were constantly hitting the ceiling. Like right. we have deals coming in. We, we need more money. And our terms were, we were working our asses off. I mean, we, the terms were 75, 25, or was they it 70, they, 30? So they were hundred percent funding partners, but we would get like 30% of all the profits. So we'd work, do the whole deal, work, do all the work and make 30% of the yeah. net, the net it's proceeds. So expensive. we're making like four or $5,000 a house after five months of work. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they really, you know, sharked us on that and we were paying interest on it too. So they're making money. Well, off. It helped us to see yep. that. Okay. Look, we're not going to be complacent with this forever. And this is a great launching pad to start from. And so yep. we've, we've grown their exposure to now, I think we utilize about 10 to 14 million with that like 13 million today and you guys are probably their best investor <laughs> oh they love yeah. it they they yeah. love where we're at and what we what we've turned it into you know they never would have expected that they would be sitting back watching us essentially run this and collecting checks right. no yeah. question in our terms with them haven't gotten a hell of a lot better we're still at 50 50, 50 and we pay right. interest so but it's we, now we do even more work for them and give up half of it all yeah so uh, detail the journey or the process, the progress um, from uh, beginning to where you guys are at now. And then I also wanted to ask you guys where you got the confidence to even know that the first one was going to work out. Because if like I was doing 70-30 and I thought there was a big chance I was going to lose money on the first deal anyways, I'd be like, F that, man. I'm not going to 
do 70, 30 on something. If I'm going to lose money, like I don't even know I can win. So how were you confident that it was going to work out? And then what did the journey look like? So one great thing we were able to start out with was like we said, they started this business and they had it going for years. And we were able to call up one of their general contractors who was also a licensed real estate agent and found deals himself, knew the market, knew how to flip homes and could do all the work. So we called him up and like, Hey, would you like, would you mind doing, you know, a couple homes with us? So essentially we got that person who could evaluate a deal for us, mm -hmm. help us find one, do the entire GC project management, all of that, and then help us kind of evaluate and sell it. So we kind of got a little bit of like to go under someone's wing to do the first few. That was the, the confidence builder. Yeah. And I started out in real estate in 2013. So when I came out of college, I came straight back to back home and, uh, jumped right into residential real estate. So I was in real estate for four years already. I did two years of traditional sales. So I knew how to comp. I knew the market. I knew what I was looking at when it came to real estate. And then I went to commercial for two years and then we opened the company up in 2017. Um, so I kind of knew what I was looking at in terms of comps and MLS and everything. So when Jesse and I started out, I knew how to look at homes. I knew how to utilize the MLS. And that's kind of what we built our business off of completely, as you guys know, is MLS-based acquisitions because it's all we knew. It's all I knew. And it's all I knew how to teach Jesse was mm -hmm. how to find properties on the MLS. I'm getting my license. I'm fresh. I'm yeah. just learning how to click through the MLS. Yeah. I mean, Jesse literally came back from, from uh, Silicon Valley and we were partners one day and we opened up a real estate company the next day and started yeah. flipping homes. So yeah. it was kind of crazy, but the trajectory of it all. So let's go back. 2016 is when we officially started. Yeah. We ended up buying, I think we started in maybe like September, August, August, August somewhere there. Yeah. Bought like two to three homes that year and maybe finished one of them like mm -hmm. by the end of the year. Um, that was essentially like the start, the first few. And we were like feel feeling like we're really hitting the ground fast. Like we bought three homes in a matter of months. And then 2017, the next full year, we ended up flipping 27 homes. Wow. And that was like a huge jump. Nobody really thought that Jesse and Landon were going to do this, that they yeah. were actually going to be serious about this and, and, and push it. But we had help. And I think that's something that we talk about a lot. And, and I know you guys um, are kind of on that same path in terms of learning from others and using the resources we have. Our general contractor was also a very savvy wholesaler, right? So we were buying properties off of him and he was doing the general contracting work on him as well. So kind of just use, utilizing the resources we had around us, we were able to scale up completely. I mean, we were running and managing the projects um, mm -hmm. ourselves, but in retrospect, you know, we were finding the deals or he was bringing us the deals as a wholesaler. He was doing all the general contracting on them. And then, you know, we just had to list them and sell them, which was the easy part. So right. um, he was of, a good person right. to, to team up with and, and learn from and then help grow the business at that time because he was so proficient in all those other things. Yeah. And then, so that was, that was 2017. We used him very heavily that year, mm -hmm. 2018. We Same. also used him very heavily um, and started finding more of our own properties though. That's yeah. what, I'll give us that. Yeah. We actually started having a couple agents in the office searching for properties for us now uh, come 2018. And I think we closed out with like 47 flips, mm -hmm. 40s, 48, something like that. Um, 2019, we've continued to grow ever since 2019 yeah. was 50 something homes. Yeah. 2019, I think we did less, but made a lot more. Oh, maybe it was. Okay. And then so, 2020 we closed 
58 but we bought 77 and then 2021 so far we bought 31 all right 2021 2021 we closed 58 bought 76 2022 so far we bought 31 yeah so the trajectory of like revenue wise we started out you know 2017 was the first full year and we probably barely each made like 100 grand maybe maybe a little bit more than that what was the average like, price point that you were buying then? And the price point was very different yeah. too. We were buying, you know, east side, north side homes, which is not great areas, for like a hundred fifty thousand to like two hundred, and flipping them for like two fifty to three. That was like our okay. sweet spot. Yeah. Yep. And so, ever squatter since then, houses. I mean, we were up five days a week, yeah. one, two, three in the morning, kicking squatters out of homes because if we didn't do it and they wrecked the homes we're out five grand and we can't be out five grand so it was big when you got nothing else it's it's very big so that was that was the graduation is over the years the price point's gone significantly higher um we're not playing in those neighborhoods anymore and we're into like master plan communities guard gated country clubs like stuff like that where we can find the million two million dollar homes and the profit margins also increase as we've done that's the reason why we've done that we've gone how Sorry. did you, I would say, how did you guys actually like decide that that was going to be your game plan? Like, did you guys just get one and then you're like, wow, that worked out really well. And you started to do it for there. What changed to where you decided to go into higher price points? Yeah. I mean, honestly, we just decided, you know, I even remember the home it was too. Right. Yeah. Edgeville was it Edgeville? Edgeville was good, but I think it was on Santalina. Santa it was a home that was in like a Summerlin community where like all of our homes are, you know, East side homes, like eighties homes. And it's kind of a little bit ghetto over there. And then we did this one in Summerlin, which is in the Willows. It's a nice area. And it took a little while longer. It was a little higher end. We paid a lot more for the rehab. And when we sold it, we were like, oh, we made like 60, 70 grand on this. Like, this is way better. So it was, it was kind of a realization that we had just branched off and done that home. But then we also paid attention to the business and said, well, why don't we focus on those instead? And ever mm-hmm. since we've raised the purchase price, we've raised the rehab budgets and the profit margins have followed up. So just to give you like a summary of it, when we first started, we were flipping homes, happy to make 15, 20 grand, happy, happy. And then over the years, it's gone from 30, 40, I think last year was like 60 something on average, the average flip profit. And I think this year we're looking at, you just looked at it. What, what is it? It's like 135,000 per So like, it, this is the point is as you measure your business and you listen to it, you'll follow the money. Yep. Do you think that it's more risk to do those higher end or do you think it's less risk? Because that's what we look at is like, okay, like we kind of got to be faster because the amount of interest adds up faster. The insurance is higher. Like everything happens to where like, I feel like you can lose bigger. Obviously there's a lot more margins there. Have you guys found that, oh, these are definitely going to sell because they're higher margins and the lower end stuff is more headache because you got FHA buyers and we usually don't have money. We usually have an exit strategy for almost every property we buy where we're like, oh, worst case scenario, we keep it. Or, oh, worst case scenario, we Airbnb it. Or worst case scenario, we sell it to another investor. Like we have so many exit strategies that we're like, eh, it doesn't even matter. Oh, well, 50, 60, 70, 80 grand. Like we'll buy those houses all day. Yeah. So do you think it's more risk or less? We have to sell. Yeah. We don't have, yeah. So in that case, a lot more risk because we don't have plan B's, right? We're not keeping them. If our plan B is we lay down until the damn thing sells. And if we lose money, we lose money and pay the money back. That's, that's what plan B is for these. However, in terms of, you know, evaluating them properly and correctly, 
And if you do so based off market conditions right now, which we're always taking into account and looking at, I don't think there's any more risk in them. I actually think there's probably a little bit less with today's market conditions because like you just said it, we're not banking on FHA buyers. We're not banking on someone, you know, barely scratching by trying to buy these homes that are truth, truthfully, I mean, a home that was $300,000 in 2019, 2020 is, is $450,000 now, 500 now. And it's out of those people's price points. So the quality of buyers is way, way better during the construction time period where we felt like our house was always just like an open invitation to anyone come and vandalize and do whatever you want. We don't feel like that at all anymore. They're in guard gated communities. They're super, super nice neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So there's no risk of like damage and replacing things and being things being stolen and increasing those costs. But in terms of cost as well, there's so much bigger spreads. So even if your rehab does go over and what you think you have more leeway to do that, and we're just generally very risk averse. So when we buy something, we budget in the time it takes, the interest it takes, the rehab, the contingency rehab, plus a buffer for all of those things. And if everything goes right, we collect all of that extra buffer back as profit. That's awesome. So what do you guys think? If you had to put a percentage on it, what do you think your percentage chance is at making money? Would you say it's like 95%? Like if you guys lost any money on any deals, I guess that's the first question. And then the second question would be the percent. So we're notorious for not losing money. Right. I think over 300 and dang, we're at like 325 purchases now since Jeez. 2017. Yeah. I think we probably lost money on like eight or nine properties. And that's wow. a faulty topic because the reason was we had a contractor that totally just like up and left. And like, we had no way to know that we he had to double pay for renovations, like 60 K renovations. But the most, yeah. even on those, the most we've ever lost on a property was 12 grand. Right. Wow. And everything wow. else has been like two grand, three grand, like digestible numbers right. where they don't even matter. And like only on lost only on seven or eight of them. So yeah. if you look at that ratio of doing 325 flips and you only yeah. lose about five grand on average on seven of them, we're, we're pretty confident we're going to make money every time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so you got a, like a 99% chance you're going to make money. Yeah. <laughs> when people ask about it, it's like, okay, right now we know we're making what we're going to make on these properties before we even get out of our due diligence contingency periods, because we have the system so dialed in, like we would literally have to have an economic disaster for us to lose money on these deals, which would hurt everybody. So you know, we can't which, right. for that. which we can't run a business off of anyhow. So it's, you know, before we buy the house, before we're even out of due diligence, because we're buying these on market. So we have a due diligence period, typically seven to 10 days. We, as soon as we lock it up and put it in contract, we notify our general con our project manager who gets a GC out there within 24 to 48 hours, walk the property, get a full design construction bid on those, on that property back within 24 to 48 hours. So within three to four days, mm -hmm. we have all of our numbers for that property. We have a full wow. design. We have, like Jesse said, interest buffered. So if we think the job's really going to take four months, we put five to six months interest um, on it. We have insurance, utilities, HOA dues, all estimated. Um, everyone that works on it, the project manager's fees, um, you know, closing costs, selling costs, um, you know, everything land, landscape, things. cleaners, everything detailed goes on that. So when we look at a profit margin and it shows a hundred grand, we're pretty close to hitting that number almost every time. Like our numbers from where we initially estimate, I mean, usually they're over because the market's going so crazy right now, but 
in reality where we think we're going to make a hundred grand, we're probably within two or 3% of that on every deal we do. Yeah. And that's another point is, you know, do we go in and fix and flip homes and then like ask the moon for them, you know, ask way over comp value. And that's something that a lot of people and may make total sense to us. Like, obviously don't do that. But when you're getting started, it's like, okay, I can evaluate this deal. Maybe you can't find that good of a deal. So you just think, well, you know, if I push the value, then I can make my money there. We mm -hmm. absolutely do not do that ever unless right. we get to the finish line where we know our basis off of the comps sold value right here. We know this house sells for this price and we decide, okay, the market's gone up. We, we should list it a little higher to see what we can get. That's all fair. But when we initially buy it, like you're saying, all during that due diligence period, we know based on those sold comps exactly where this home if we have to lay down where this thing sells and we make sure we make money at that point. So then anything above that's gravy. Wow. Did you guys uh, get better at analyzing your deals in over time or did you guys keep track of everything to like narrow it down even more? Or like, how did you guys get so close now? Cause obviously there's unless like your dad had a freaking formula that was just ridiculous and like always had it exactly right. Or, you know, how did you guys adjust to make sure that you're that accurate? Because we lost money on a flip and we kind of knew where we lost some money on it. But like we're not we're usually uh, I would say we have like a five to ten grand buffer and your guys it sounds like it's in the thousands. So we'd like to shrink that, you know, buffer if possible. Yeah, no, I mean, it may we may have miscommunicated that our buffer can be very large. We can we can absolutely have some serious cushion, especially on luxury homes. You know, if you're talking the, the eight months that I might plan to hold this, I'm going to, or six months I plan to hold this. Well, I'm going to buffer eight months and that might be another 20,000. Right. Just what, in I, the interest buffer. what I mean though, is uh, you said that you're usually right on your numbers when you get done with the flip, you're like, Oh man, like we thought we we're going to make a hundred thousand. Yeah. We made a hundred thousand or we made more or we were off by two grand. So yeah, like, you're, you're off by uh 12 grand and we were off by 40 and we buy properties for less than you guys do. We were also off on another property by like a hundred grand that we ended up making significantly more money on than we thought was possible. But how, how do you uh, uh, mitigate and control your uh, loss? Where do you think you were off? I mean, did you, did you have comps to support the value or were you just betting on appreciation where you No, we were off on the construction? It was hundred percent, the construction. We just, okay. it went crazy over time. We spent $130,000 on a property that we bought 110 for. We thought the rehab, well, we knew what the rehab should have cost. It's a long story on that one, but uh, like, yeah, it was not managing our contractors properly and they were hourly. So it really screwed us. But um, how do you guys actually like, you know, narrow your guys's analyzing down or like did you guys all plug it into a spreadsheet and then keep tracking over time and get better at it or so the best thing we do is like we said we get everything cost up front and we can make adjustments if we're not happy with where it lies but then at the end since our business is so focused on the mls we live and breathe it we've gotten so good at individual neighborhoods placement inside of neighborhoods this view versus that view, that course versus this course, and how that affects the values, especially in the luxury space, our list price to sales price ratio is like 97.7%. So yeah. when we wow. analyze what this home should be worth and ask that money for it, we almost always get that money for it. Yeah. I mean, where you're going to go wrong is construction and evaluating the resale value, right? Comps and construction. So our construction, you know, with our crews, the way we've built our business, and I suggest everyone to do it the same way is we get our bid up front and it doesn't change unless we go in and add. 
on purpose. That's it. Right. So when, when our bid comes in, we have a full scope of work, every inch of that house, exactly what we want to do up front. So that number doesn't change. So maybe you paying hourly, it added up to a hell of a lot more because you kept adding and adding and adding and hours kept adding up. Like we go in, if our number on the bids, a hundred grand, but we go in and say, Hey, let's add this to that wall, add this to that wall, add this to that wall. We have a choice of adding five grand to the bid or keeping it where it was at a hundred grand, mm -hmm. but that hundred thousand dollar bid isn't changing. We get what we get for that number, which has always kept us in line and able to feel comfortable buying the house. And I think that comes with being really thorough up front, you know, not walking through a house and be like, Oh yeah, we can do this. Uh, that would look good over there. It's, I think it'll cost 30 grand. Yeah. No, when it we, costs 50. We'll I mean, take, big deal. we used to take hours, mm -hmm. hours with the contractor going room by room, even for simple stuff. And that just caused us to get into the habit of being incredibly thorough. So our contractors now, even if we use a new one and we want to bid out a property with a new one, he gets a full scope design, products, fixtures, faucets, everything links to them, prices to them. So when we get a bid back, it's to the dollar for everything we want to do to that house. There's no up in the air question, will we have to pay more to flip this house? We know exactly what it's going to cost. And then we can go in and only do stuff on purpose if we want to add a improve feature, it. add yeah. this, improve it. Wow. So uh, you guys talk about your early some of the early struggles are like flops or like bumps, you know, times when you started to lose faith or uh, it really like weighed on you, like some of the things that happened early on. I mean, maybe now, like looking back, some of the things that I was stressed out about weren't nearly as big of a deal, but at the time it was a big deal. Can you think back on some of those early struggles and the lessons that you learned from them? Tell them about the alarms. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Tell them about the alarms. I mean, the squatters and the alarms were a big, a big struggle where, you know, we were, I mean, Jesse and I were literally up at, you know, our, our, my, my wife, my now wife knew like my, my phone was ringing and my alarms were going off every night at 10, 11, 12, one o'clock. And these houses meant so much to us. The profits were so important to us that we were up sometimes twice a night. Yeah driving across town to try to catch squatters in our house and call the cops and wait two, three hours and then wake up the next day and know it, know it's going to happen again. So we alarmed the houses. Mm -hmm. It didn't help. Alarms went off and we had to, now we just knew we were being robbed. <laughs> we were going to get robbed. Right. Now we just knew about it. Right. And then we started putting cameras in the houses and that, then we saw what they were doing, which yeah. just made our mental worse. So then we took cameras out and said, you know what? We don't care. <laughs> so it, it was a struggle. It was a learning curve. You know, we were comfortable with buying and flipping homes at that price point and where we could find those were in those areas. And it, we had to learn from it and gain confidence and reputation and have the ability to now go into a better area and, and avoid yeah. those problems. I think another learning curve that I think everyone has to be careful of and cognizant of, however, I think it's unavoidable for the entry level is being taken advantage of by people in the business, right? Being take, taken advantage of by contractors, mm -hmm. you know, being robbed by contractors with pricing and valuations and change orders and all those different items because you're not savvy in construction yet or, or negotiations yet. Um, we were robbed many, many times and taken advantage of many, many times, but still made all the money and, and grew from it. So I wouldn't worry about it too much, but it's something that at times where you it caused a lot of frustration with us. Um, 
gives you that feeling of being taken advantage of gives you that feeling of being hostage mm-hmm. you know when you're sixty thousand dollars into a rehab and the guy starts not answering his phone and refuses to show up and you're sitting there like what do i do like we're literally hostage on a property um those were those were pretty difficult conversations and difficult times that we had that you just got to learn from get better at you know it's going to happen it's going to happen to everyone Um, yeah so let's say it does happen to somebody what did you guys do in that situation uh, cause that's happened to us too, man. And then like, I'm always like, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. This guy's he's, he's going to come back. We're going to figure this out. And then eight months later, we're suing him. And then freaking the lawyers, we, you know, we get a lower amount then the lawyer gets a cut and it, it, you end up losing no matter what. So what did you guys do? Just that we did the same thing. <laughs> you know, we, we took him to, to court and we filed for damages and we got paid some, some of the damages, not even close to, of course, what we were out, but what we've learned from him, the biggest thing we took away from it is how to vet out people, you know, right. how to Create actually, process. how to actually research them and look at their licenses and see if they have any demerits on it and see what they say on the County board and, and actually look into it before we just take somebody's word for it. Mm-hmm. So ever since we've always done that, we've never had that problem again. I don't plan to have that problem again. Yep. Awesome. How, how many do you guys keep as far as rental properties and, uh, I guess, why do you keep them too? Because like some people who are watching this may not know about the tax advantages and that sort of thing. So are you guys scaling up the number that you're keeping now in order to reduce your taxable income and do more depreciation and that sort of thing? What is your holding strategy? What's it look like? And how many are you doing now? So you you nailed a lot of it right on the head. I mean, the reason, the honest reason why most most rich people buy uh, passive income and cash flowing real estate is not for the cash flow. It's for appreciation because real estate has appreciated over time, regardless of economic conditions. And that's proven and the depreciation. So we have a brokerage that we run with a bunch of agents. We have a fix and flip. Are we frozen? Oh, froze. Okay. One sec. We have a brokerage that we run, which you guys have heard the Bokley group. It's not back on yet. Sorry. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Our brokerage has a bunch of agents and they do traditional business. Now we also have an investing company and that investing company works out of the brokerage's office. So the brokerage has a lot of overhead and a lot of personnel and salaries and things to pay. And it doesn't make a whole lot of money, but essentially that flipping company operates almost for free. And at the end of the year, when that flipping company, which does make the most money of all of them, looks at its tax bill, it's got a very large tax bill. So by purchasing those uh, buy and hold properties, we can depreciate them and write off and reduce our taxable liability each year by a significant amount. And own the assets. But yeah, to answer your second question, you know, one major, major regret that we have that we didn't learn earlier, we want, we should have learned earlier, we weren't taught earlier, I should say, was you know, keeping more of our properties. Oh, we, totally. we just started keeping properties. I mean, out of 325 flips, there's no reason why we shouldn't have made a pack from the beginning that we keep one of 10. And now we would have 30 plus, you know, assets, you know, cash flowing properties and, and buy and hold properties. Uh, that would be making quite a bit of money right now for us. And they would have been worth double what we paid for them you right. know, four or five years ago. So we own six. Uh, and we're trying to buy 15 this year. Mm-hmm. So we are heavily on the train of ramping up 
what we own and how many we own. Um, but man, for anyone out there listening, our biggest, one of our biggest regrets in business in the last five years is not keeping and making just, and you gotta, you gotta make a system for it because you're going to want to flip them. Even if it makes 50, 60 grand. Yeah. Flip that thing. But you got to say one out of every 10, we keep, this is our one out of 10. I know I can make money, but also we made a pack and a business model and a business plan to keep one of 10 or one of five or whatever your number is as a, an asset. So it's hard to do. And that's moment. what we're working on. Very hard to do, but you'll always thank yourself down the road. Yeah. Cause I can't, I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, you, right now they're making 50, 60, 70,000. It's hard to say, no, let's keep it as a rental, but gotta do yeah. what you gotta do. That's funny. Cause we, we did the exact opposite. We we're like, we want to keep everything. We don't want to flip it. And then we talked to Ryan and Ryan's like, dude, you guys got to start flipping. We're like, we really don't want to. Though. Cause we're, like, we're like, Hey, we, uh, we don't have any money. We're broke as crap. Uh, we've got, you know, 20 <laughs> rentals. Like when we started the program and he's like, why aren't you guys flipping any? And we're like, cause we want to keep everything Ryan. And then <laughs> I think that's when he started to change his mind and started keeping a lot more too. Uh, I don't think we were the ones that convinced him, but he, he started to get that information. Huh? How many you guys got? Uh, well, we just bought a, a quadplex, a triplex, and three duplexes uh, today, or we're locking it up. So that's pretty crazy. Nice. So that's just their 13, but we got 41 rentals right now. But wow. our average, our average price point is a lot different. I would say our average home that we own is around like 70,000 um like value wise and our you know our average rent now is probably like man it's probably like 850 or 900 now and um, so do those those cash flow you're leveraged on those and you're cash flowing like a couple hundred bucks like two three exactly. four hundred bucks yeah okay. and honestly they don't make very much money and then whenever something goes wrong like we break even but uh yeah, yeah like we said it's like man it's like long-term play and uh depreciation and we get to write off all of our taxable income and yeah it's just like we want to, we, we want to keep ramping it up, but it is funny because we were the exact opposite. We're like, we don't want to flip anything. And then, uh, we decided like here recently, we just did on a spew where we flipped like 20 properties in a row. It seems like we just like kept doing it because Ryan told us to do it. And we're like, all right, let's start flipping. Now we came up with a bunch of money and we were freaking out because we didn't have any money. Now we have too much money. And then now that we got these other deals, we just bought the mansion and then we bought these ones. Well, now it, we're out of money again. It was partly out of necessity because we, uh, decided to start scaling a little bit. Like we built this, well, we, we got this office, built the podcast room, hired some more employees. And once you get enough overhead and you look at what you're actually making on your rentals, you're like, wow, we're not making any money over here. Yeah. And then yeah. you start we looking at your work. wholesaling and you're like, wow, we're not making enough to pay our overhead. So then it's like, well, we're going to have to flip some houses or we're going to go under. And then once we started flipping them, it was just like, well, we, for some reason, it seems recently, like we've been buying in better parts of town, not on purpose, just it's like more opportunities are popping up and we actually know more about the better parts of town now. And so we just started flipping all of those. Most of our rentals are in the rougher parts of town, really. <laughs> I was going to say, so these mansion, this mansion you're talking about, this is your, this is your luxury flip. You're jumping into luxury flips now. 12,000 yeah. square feet, right? Oh yeah. Well, it dude. might be a luxury Airbnb. Yeah, dude. Our luxury was the last one that we did. And we bought that one for 205,000. We sold it for 400. That's luxury in Fort Wayne, man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I guess that goes into, uh, you know, I always, whenever I think about rentals, I think about, you know, cash flow and freedom, which kind of goes into like this question, like, what is your guys' why, like individually, 
Why do you guys even do this? Why are you in real estate? So it, it kind of like the conversation started. It's, it's, it kind of circles back where it wasn't really a question of we're going to go after something and we're going to have this drive and we're going to create a business and we're going to run a business. And we're going to operate and run a million miles an hour. That's just how we were brought up. That's what we assumed was going to happen. And the why I think we want, we feel so passionate, energetic right now at this age, but hell no, I'm not going to be flipping houses when I'm 50 years old. Right. I'm not going to be out here grinding and going walking properties and deciding if I'm going to use that contract or that contract or when I'm 47, I'm not doing that. So the why is so that I'm not trying to postpone my life and say, well, I'm going to have fun when I retire. We're obviously living great lives now, but the point is to hustle hard, get it all, get in all the work so that we can step back at an earlier age and enjoy lots of those freedoms. Yeah. And then, you know, it goes back to family. You know, the guys, uh, when I say the guys, I, we call them the guys, our dads, um, rough family life growing up for them. They've given us a great life, but um, I don't think they enjoy like grandparents or anything like that. So just having a solid family and doing it for them. And, you know, honestly competing against the legacy of, of, of my dad is something there where it's like, it's tough. they were millionaires by 30 years old. You know, we were millionaires at 31, 31. <laughs> um, so we lost there, but at the end of the day, you know, they, they had a big speed bump with the crash where that didn't happen. They probably would have been billionaires, but they're not. So now it's uh, our time to try to try to beat them. And, you know, that's just something that's instilled in us is a little bit of family competition to be better and do better. Um, so it's cool to give back to them too, because, you know, yeah. they, they are essentially like one of our biggest banks. And so now just knowing that we've grown this business to a certain level and it pays them regularly, like every week we're, Giving back, essentially, you right. know, yeah. they brought us up well, sent us to school, good schools, colleges. We're we're giving that back now. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. I'll say I do it. I, I did it in a lot different way. My dad bought me my first car is like four hundred bucks, so I bought him a truck. He sold the truck, and I was like, "What the heck, Dad?" So then I bought him another truck. So that was the way I gave back to him. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> so, uh, talk about the brokerage a little bit. Like, why did you decide to start your own brokerage? And then how much traditional business do you guys do uh, with the brokerage? What's the organization look like today? How's everything structured? Are you similar to Ryan where there's the pyramid, you know, you guys are the CEOs. And then after that, you have people in charge of each business. Um, so what's the brokerage look like? Why did you do it? And then what does your organization look like today? Yeah, I think the brokerage stemmed from honestly, having to having the ability to purchase and list all of the investment properties it was a tool so that's what it was for originally um so we opened the brokerage right away i had the experience with four years in real estate to be a broker mm -hmm. um so we did that immediately as soon as we, uh, qualified um opened the brokerage so that first could, agent yeah jesse was the first agent in my company <laughs> and, um, and partner <laughs> but um yeah, no, we did it so we could offer on properties use, utilizing the MLS and then and then saving the, the listing um, commissions and fees um, so that the properties actually made sense to buy. Um, that's what started it. How it's grown over the years is, you know, we've been on social media since we started pretty much. Um, you know, our friends and, you know, acquaintances saw us and what we were doing, flipping homes and working our own, on our own and, 
running our own business and our own lives. And they're all, you know, servers or cocktail waitresses or bussers at the day clubs and nightclubs here in Vegas. Cause that's what everyone in Vegas does at that age. They want the um, same success and they're making money. Don't get me wrong. You know, yeah. you're making 70 to hundred a year as a busser in Vegas, um, oh. serving up bottles, which is, which is sweet. But you know, they were, they were working like dogs in the 120 degree weather at the day clubs while we were enjoying ourselves. So naturally a couple of people wanted to come over and start working with us and for us offering on properties. And, um, it kind of organically grew from there. So, you know, fast forward to today, we have almost 30 agents in the brokerage now. Mm -hmm. um, we do have more of a pyramid built uh, business model where we just, we, we do have a broker manager at the top of the pyramid. So we own, we own the company, we own it 50, 50 yeah. and broker manager is in charge of all agents and their production and anything that's going on in the residential side yeah. of the world there. We also have a full-time in-house transaction coordinator and a full-time secretary admin that basically like is the controller for the entire company. Yeah. So we have the, um, the broker manager is also our listing agent too yeah. for all, all of our investment properties. So between the listing agent, broker manager, transaction coordinator, and admin, I mean, we have pretty much every role that needs to be fulfilled on a daily basis inside of the brokerage. And so our involvement is again from just the top of the pyramid is how do we grow where are we struggling what can we improve on how can we help right marketing costs support uh value add with content and just you know now that we're creating more of a, a brand name as the Bulkley brothers you know adding value to them by being associated with us is, is great for the agents uh, i think transactionally we're doing about 200 transactions a year out of the office traditionally mm -hmm. not including our flip transactions um, but our goal this year is to almost double that. And I don't think it's going to be very hard to do that. Wow. What is your biggest struggle right now? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, man. There's so many. Like, which one do I pick from? Because we always have struggles. Or what do you need help with? What do you need help with? What could be improved? What's the biggest struggle? I would say, well, one of the things, it might be a smaller issue, but like we've had such good consistency in finding deals. We really have no problem in that department. We've had a great, like last year, good ramp up in finding money, but we're having trouble finding people to flip these homes. Like we have a couple of good people, but we're now trying to grow. And so we have to have more people to contractors. So like finding good contractors has been a very hard thing. I know it might not be like a giant business strategy problem, but it's still a core of this entire business and without it, it, you can't really grow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people think we're crazy when we tell them that we buy like 75 to 80 properties a year on the MLS. One thing that we have struggled with and we're trying to build upon is direct to seller marketing. Definitely. Um, because, you know, do I think there's a cap to the MLS purchase ability? I think there is. Um, I mean, there's people, there's, you know, some of these funds buy a lot of properties off the MLS, but I think they buy at such low margins that we can't support. So I think for us, like 80 to a hundred properties off the MLS is probably capped out as to what we can buy there. So to do anything above that, I really think we need a direct to seller marketing model that produces a consistent five to 10 transactions a month mm -hmm. so that we could really ramp our volume up at least here in Vegas, 
to hundred plus deals a year. And that's, that's one of our big goals is to do that. Um, so that's something that we struggled with so, so much over the years is a team and a manager that could truly attack direct seller marketing and, you know, produce consistently. Would you guys hire an acquisitions guy to handle those leads or would you guys try to take those on too? So we, we tried to do it ourselves. We tried to partner up with a really good producing agent here and two of them here in the office and kind of run our own little side company and, and essentially do it ourselves. And that was the problem is we, we just don't have the time and, and, or really the expertise and, and, and effort to make it successful. So recently we've hired a, essentially like a, a group manager. So there's three guys in an office. One's taken on leads. Yeah, we're trying to do this right now. Yeah. Uh, and it's operating right now. It's, yeah. it's up and running, but they're just getting started. They just started 2022. So we have a, like a, essentially like an operations guy manager. He's managing like the CRM and the leads and everything that's coming in, making sure it's all functioning. Then we have a, a leads manager who's actually on, on the phones talking to these people. We utilize VAs that are of course remote. And then we have a guy that is set up to go on appointments or appointments with us. Um, so we're only involved at really at that level and then evaluating if we get deals where we want to buy them and how. And then we have that, essentially, I think that problem solver at the top who's in charge of the room. He's in charge of all of those guys and making sure that they show up, that they're working, that they're hitting goals, that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, right now it's turning out a lot of listings, which is cool. It's a little listing machine, which I don't know if you guys are experiencing the same thing where everyone just wants top dollar retail. I don't know in different markets, but that's kind of what it's doing. So how do I that's, buy flips from it? Yeah, so that's not bad either. Yeah, for us, we found that when people reach out to us, they don't want to list it. So it, it must just be a difference. Like, Well, we're, we're the opposite too, where like at the, in the beginning, uh, Dakota came to me and I was a realtor and he was like, hey, how's the MLS work? And I was like, I have no freaking idea. <laughs> I was such a bad realtor. And uh we still haven't really went hard into the realtor side at all. Like we don't know our MLS or like really how to use it well at all and haven't pursued that so much because we started out so heavy direct to seller that like that's our bread and butter and where we'd rather be. And I think if people uh, talk about wanting retail, you know, Dakota's so good at sales and pulling numbers out of people and getting them to kind of like explain their situation and figure out how we can reach a win-win, but there's no way we're ever going to pay retail for anything. And so by the time we get to the end of the conversation, I feel like they're like uh, minimally offended. So when it comes time to like, they're a little turked, like they're a little pissed to begin with. So when it's like, Hey, have you thought of listing it with a realtor? They're, they're just not, they're like, they want to hang up the phone by that point. They're like, oh, wait, I could get more money. You should have told me. <laughs> no, actually, you know, that's something that we say. So that would be something like, you know, if the person that's making the offer is a realtor, you might be surprised at how much he's pushing that onto somebody, even though he doesn't even realize it. Because like, for me, like, that's not even like, that's, that's like, Hey, do you guys, you know, want to list it? Or like, I always ask them, are you trying to get the most money for the property? You're trying to have the easiest process. If they say the most money, perfect. We're not your guys. How about we list it? I got somebody I can refer you to. And then right. that would be like a different person. If you have that person that is a realtor, you'd be surprised at how many times like, okay, well let's list it for you. I'm gonna get my 3% commission. And then life's going to be great. You know, right. they don't think about it like that. Like for us and, uh, like for me and then our acquisitions guy, dude, he doesn't want to list it. I told him, I was like, dude, if we get a listing, I'll give you 250 bucks if we list it. <laughs> like we don't want to list it. He doesn't want to list it. We're trying to get the deals. So it's cash. It's cash discount or bust. Yeah. 
I mean, we'll throw it out there as a backup option. And a lot of times these people, though, when they reach out to us, they do know that they can get more money on the market. We tell them that, hey, look, if you're going to list your property, you can get this. But obviously, it's not going to be as is. You're going to have to go through appraisals. You're going to have to go through all this stuff. And we can make it fast and easy. But like, here's what you're going to give up. You're going to give up this much equity. The difference, I mean, our equity, you know, spreads might be different, but usually they give up about 50,000 in equity. You guys might be a little bit more to where it makes less sense for them. I'm not sure, but that's, that's what we've found. So do you buy properties? Are you giving them an offer with flip first in mind, or are you giving them, giving them an offer where it works for you to buy and hold? Yeah. Wholesale. We're giving them a wholesale offer. Yeah, it depends. Offer. Yeah. So it usually depends uh, on the property as well. So when we get over a hundred, 150,000, it's a flip for us all day. We don't really hold stuff like that very often, except for this Airbnb or the one that we're going to Airbnb out. It's a mansion. We bought it for 500. We're going to try to hold that sucker, but we don't know if it's going to work out. But I would say like most of the time, if it's over 150,000, it's not even a question of whether we're going to rent it out or not. We usually are going to run flip numbers, but we usually offer 50% of value first. And then we go up from there. A lot of our incoming calls too are from mailers that we sent out. And it mm -hmm. specifically has language in there that makes it more likely for them to give us a call. Um, also makes it more likely to give us a call offended. But a lot of times it'll say that we have a cash offer prepared that we'd like to discuss with them. So they call in, they say, Hey, you gave me a letter about XYZ property. I just wondered what your offer was. And then you right. say, oh, okay, no problem. Yeah, I remember that property. Give me one second to bring it up. Is it okay if I ask you a couple questions about it while I'm looking it up? And so then you're hitting them with questions and they're waiting on the number. And then you tell them what other other eight, like other investors in the area are paying for something like that. And so right. you hit them low enough that they come back and they go, ah, oh. But usually, you know, if they say yes, you're like, all right, we're going to make a lot of money. Yeah, we just bought one. We bought one uh, for $4,000 off a TV wow. ad and we sold it the next day for 30,000. And, you know, we're like, all right, that was a no brand. That's a yep. great one. 4,000. We probably should have sold it for more, honestly, but it is what it is. Um, but uh, I guess we can get into some closing questions now. Yeah, we're about sure. to get real deep now that we were just bouncing around a whole bunch of uh, business stuff. This is, <laughs> this is one of the tougher questions. So it's 60 years from now. Uh, you're both on your deathbed, you're dying, and uh, you have a final message to the world. It'll be your legacy, uh, advice, a paragraph, a sentence, a um, something, a, a, a saying that means something to you, um, how you want people to remember you. Uh, what is your legacy? What's your billboard to the world? That's a great one. That's a it great is. one. I know that this this may be like a lot of other people's, but life's good. You're you're so lucky to be here and living it. Don't forget that. It's so easy to forget that. Everything you do every day and most of the people that you meet and the encounters that you come across try to get you to forget that because of whatever is going on right now and how difficult something seems. But you're so damn lucky to be here. Yeah. So like, just don't forget to remind yourself that every day, because if you do, you'll look back on your life and kind of regret that you didn't feel better about it. Yeah. And I, I think mine is, you know, I playing off that. I, I love that. But trust your gut. You know, I, I think you know what you want inside all the time. You could feel it if you are sitting at your nine to five and you hate it and you want to jump into something that you're passionate about. Do it. Because you're going to be miserable 
you know, sitting there doing something you don't want to do. And that's just no way to live. And you're going to be so much more successful, trusting your gut, going with what you're passionate about. Um, and, and, you know, living, living that type of life because no one wants to be on their deathbed saying, I wish I did this or I wish no. I did that. So, um, you, you know, guys listen to at my let. Oh, absolutely. He's my favorite. He's Number a, one he's guy. Great. He's so good. God, he makes you cry. He's yeah. got a good, uh, answer to this question is that when he, his nightmare is that when he dies, he goes to wherever you go to, to decide if you're going to go to heaven or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And he meets himself. But it's not himself. It's himself that was 100% of himself, that took advantage of everything, that took every opportunity, that pushed life to the fullest, that did everything he possibly could to enjoy his life. And his nightmare is looking that person in the face and not recognizing them. Yeah. So knowing that you didn't take advantage of all of that, you wasted all of these opportunities and to see what you could have been. And so reminding yourself of that to always try to do those things so that in the end, if in that event where you do get to that point, you can recognize that person and feel fulfilled. Yeah. I mean, it circles around to the beginning of this entire conversation today is, you know, you use the tools you were given to your best ability in life, whatever it is. If you're a musician, be a musician, be the best musician on earth. If you're, you know, well off and you're born in a well off family, use it to your advantage. If you're broke, use that motivation to your advantage. Know, whatever it is you got to go for it 100 percent. good question boys awesome uh how can our listeners get a hold of you do you guys have anything that you want to plug like uh, a book sure. a course a book a course you want them to join the brokerage drink vitamin water no <laughs> drink vitamin water i haven't seen a dang vitamin water on your guys's desk this whole podcast i, haven't seen <laughs> I saw fitty sent the I other day it's looking like we would love if anybody that's listening to this that wants to reach out that has any real estate questions or wants to talk to us about real estate please find us on all our platforms we go by the bokley brothers so you can find us on instagram and tiktok and youtube as the bokley brothers even if you just watch some videos and drop comments we'd love to respond to everyone's comments so that's also a great way to get a hold of us dming us through those platforms of course you can always reach us that way too and if you want to get into deep diving into real estate investing and getting started learn from us personally learn from us personally because we we personally direct you on how to how to get started in real estate you can always find us at the bokeleybrothersacademy.com and get yourself signed up there too yeah and that's a coaching platform that we just launched this year in january so we're super excited about that have running on 50 students already in the academy, close, which is close. great. So it's a good network of people that are already involved and um, we're interacting and personally coaching on a weekly basis. So if you want to learn what we do and how we do it, MLS acquisitions is a focus of ours um, and ground up flip starting from scratch. So reach and Boakley is spelled B O E C K L E the Boakley brothers. So you make it. sure you make sure you type it incorrectly. Yeah. And, uh, I was just talking to somebody on like an accountability group or something. They were asking about your guys' course and, uh, they're like, yeah, man, anything I should get the course. I was like, dude, I remember when you guys presented in the future flipper, like program, you guys blew my mind. I was like, dude, I did not know that that was possible. And you guys really did. Like, I think you were only up there for 30 minutes and you literally spelled it out. Like, Hey, here's how you do this. So I'm like, dude, I can't even imagine like how good you guys course is because you had 30 Thank minutes you. and I'm, you still blew my mind on what's possible. So like we really going deep dive. We're only supposed <laughs> to be other for 10 minutes. So we're <laughs> like, get on, get out of there. But it just felt, it felt good. It felt yeah. good sharing. 
but yeah, that was awesome. And yeah, so if you guys are interested in like flipping properties or anything, or like want to know how you can find deals on the MLS, these are definitely the guys to go to. And obviously they've proven that. Appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for talking right. to you guys. Do you have any other final thoughts for our viewers? Anything you want to share with them? I think we shared a bunch. Um, you know, I think, you know, in general, it's networking is the key to growth nowadays. This is how we're even on this call today is meeting you guys through the power of networking and through other communities. Um, so get out there, you know, it, it, sometimes it's expensive. Sometimes it seems expensive, but it's really not because if you learn from someone and do one deal, it pays for it a million times over most likely. Um, so join groups, learn, network, collaborate with other people. That's how we see, you know, exponential growth in today's market. Um, competition in my mind is a little bit more dead nowadays than ever. Collaboration is the way to make money and, and make millions. So and final thought I'd say is, is don't try to do everything yourself. Don't try to always figure it out. There's always somebody who can help you and is willing to help you with whatever you're going through. So instead of trying to figure out, uh, how do I figure out this all, all of myself, try to find a person who's going to help you to figure it out. Cool. All right, man. Well, we really appreciate you guys uh, coming on. You guys are awesome. Keep crushing it. And thanks again. Thanks for having us. Yeah, It's good to see you guys. We'll see you probably at the next mastermind here in Vegas. Always, always fun hanging out. So yes, sir. Keep crushing cool. it. All right. All right, man. That'll be the end of the podcast. I'm sure you guys got a bunch of work to do. I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> All right, bro. I got to eat some. Have fun. All right. See you guys. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, guys.